the been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. Joe, I'm very excited for our guest today. He's currently enjoying life on the farm in Iowa. He is easily one of my favorite New York Mets of all time. Used to love going to the games with my dad and watching him pitch. Joe, tell our guest who we have on with us here today. Uh, He played in the majors for 11 years over four teams. uh, And he was a Met, I believe, for five years. So uh, we're really excited to have him on. Uh, Turk Wendell. Turk, welcome to the show. How you doing? Good, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on the show today. Hope all is well in your neck of the woods. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you, you coming on here. And, you know, right now, I, I think you're the perfect guest to, to discuss what's going on in baseball with. We have a pitcher out there who's a free agent who some would say is very eccentric in Trevor Bauer. <laughs> and, of course, you were known for being eccentric or, or superstitious, some would say. Trevor Bauer, do you think he's good for the game with what he's been doing on social media and YouTube, or do you think there's a red flag there for some traditional front offices? Well, I, I hands down, I think he's a tremendous pitcher. Obviously, Cy Young speaks for itself, the award. Um, I enjoy watching him pitch. I, I like how he's brought analytics to the game. He really dissects you know, spin rate and his, his delivery, his hand grips and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, helped a lot of kids. My son is pretty, pretty big into that now. And I mean, it's part of the game, but um, to me, the bottom line is getting get guys out. Um, it's weird how the game's changed in the recent years, as far as who cares how many times you strike out. If you can hit 20 to 25 plus home runs a year, well, I don't care if you strike out every at bat other than those dingers or can you throw 105 miles an hour well who cares then as long as you can throw 105 miles an hour but you know does it matter you got to get guys out that's the bottom line you got to put runs on the board bottom line but um getting back to trevor bauer i think it would be a great addition to the mets um going forward you don't know what's going to happen with stroman next year um <clears throat> there's Syndicard another one yes Syndergaard as well but I have a problem with people in general movie stars athletes whatever thinking they have this platform that everyone cares what you think or what you have to say you know to me it's shut up and play baseball shut up and play basketball shut up and make a movie you know I don't care what your political views are do what you're getting paid to do and stay in your lane. Or I say out here in the country, watch your own bobber. <laughs> um, I, Trevor Bauer, I think, could get in some trouble off the field with his, um, just as is whatever you want to call the platform of Twitter and all the other stuff he does on, on social media. 
just because New York is is a city that you know that he could get eaten alive. He could thrive too. But uh, for me, it was pretty intimidating going there. Um, I didn't like big cities, and I still don't like big cities. But uh, you know, like the song goes, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And I actually thrived on the fans. Uh, supporting me but I think that's just a correlation of working my ass off each and every day not to let the fans down not to let the team down not to let myself down my family down but um, you know we didn't have back then the, all the social media where everybody uh, scrutinizes over every little thing you do and you know uh, if I pitched a bad game I heard about it or saw it on ESPN for maybe a day or two and life goes on well, now everyone just lives on their phones and uh, everybody hides behind the mask of Twitter and whatever Facebook and all these other uh, social media, I guess you call them platforms or chat rooms, whatever you want to call them. I, I am so anti against that. I do not have any social media whatsoever. I, I email, I text and I probably text too much, but uh it's easier to, you know, respond to somebody when they can just do it at their leisure. Uh, and I make phone calls and once in a while I still write letters and people who get them will respond going, Holy cow. I can't remember the last time I got a letter. <laughs> Heck some kids today can't even read cursive. It's yeah, not, even taught, not taught anymore. It's like a, it's like a hieroglyphic language nowadays. Yeah. It's so true. Uh, but two entirely different <laughs> philosophies to look at that. Uh, since you mentioned politics, obviously we have to bring up uh, Kurt Schilling and what happened recently here with the 2021 Major League Baseball Hall of Fame vote. Uh, the baseball writers chose not to select anybody. Uh, there were 14 people that did not. Uh, my question is, Kurt Schilling is a Hall of Famer uh, and to add to that, uh, are there other guys there who are there on the ballot? Obviously, uh, Bonds and Clemens always elicit a certain type of reaction. A lot of people think they are Hall of Famers. A lot of sports media personalities think they are Hall of Famers. Uh, personally speaking, I tend to lean to yes, that they're Hall of Famers. Uh, I believe Kurt Schilling was a Hall of Famer. I'm not a Mets fan here. Nick's the Mets fan, but I am a Yankees fan. And I got to watch oh, interviews Kurt over. Schilling play really well against us. So I know about his postseason uh, accomplishments. So do you think that they're Hall of Famers? And obviously we, we brought politics in here. So I want to get your opinions on Schilling. Um, personally, no. I, being that I played the game, I just think that, uh, that guys that are linked to steroids, whether they have been found guilty of it or not. And um, everybody knows and it's stupidity to think they didn't do something to enhance their careers. Um, would they have been Hall of Famers if they didn't do that? Absolutely. Without a question. Um, and then everyone brings up the Pete Rose thing as you know, well, how is he not in the Hall of Fame? But, you know, Pete Rose <coughs> is guilty of violating Article 21, which has been around since whatever it was, 1908 or 12 or 18 with the whole Black Sox scandal. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the consequences. So I'm sorry. Yeah. Should it be in the Hall of Fame? Heck yeah. It was the greatest hitter ever that ever played in the big leagues, but the rules are the rules. Some people argue that, well, these weren't rules that these guys were doing steroids and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, but getting to Kurt Schilling, um, I personally never – yeah, he pitched some big games in the World Series, and he won, uh, what, two World Series, Diamondbacks, Red Sox. But to me, those are team accomplishments. And, uh, you know, you can have a great game, and the accolades are there for, for pitching a big game in a big situation in the World Series and whatnot, which is great. But, uh, you know, he – yeah, he had 3,000 strikeouts, but he only had something like 210 or 12 wins. Um, I just, uh, you never want to sign young. Um, I, I feel it's pretty sad that he's decided to basically take his toys and go home now and not want to be on the ballot. To me, it'd be an honor to be on the ballot. I, I, I have a funny story. I mean, I personally think if, 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 a, if a player is able to play 10 years or more in the big leagues, he should automatically be on the ballot. Whether you get a vote or not, that's irrelevant. Well, so I wasn't even on the ballot. And somewhere somebody told me that I was. So I was all excited. And I called Cooperstown. I said, hey, uh, would it be just could I just get a copy of the ballot? Just because I think it would be pretty cool to frame it and have it in my house. And the guy said, sure, no problem. I'll get back to you in a few days. He calls me back like four or five days later. And he, um, really sorry, but you weren't on the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of yeah it was a deflation but um it is what it is i mean i was a you know i was a mediocre reliever at best and uh but i loved what i did and um made the most of it last question on the hall of fame here obviously i think long gone are the days of anybody winning 300 games as a pitcher so there obviously just has to come down to dominance of periods and cy young's how far off is Jacob DeGrom from being a Hall of Famer and what would he need to do here in the next few years of his career in order to potentially get in? I think it's longevity. I think the only – and I, I don't know these stats for uh, off the top of my head if, if they're true, but I think the only Hall of Famer that didn't play 10-plus years is Sandy Koufax maybe, if I'm not mistaken. But he had true dominance, perfect game, Cy Young's no hitters, um, stuff like that. But I think with DeGrom, it's, it's going to be some longevity. I mean, yeah, he's got two Cy Youngs, but, um, and the ERAs and all that kind of stuff sits for itself. But, you know, fortunately he's played on some mediocre below average teams where his win losses kind of sucked. Right. And, 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 you know, they look at that and, uh, um, sometimes that's, uh, not the whole picture. Um, and it's sad, but it's just the way people um, people are. I mean, you know, everyone looked at Babe Ruth as the greatest home run hitter ever, but he also held the record for strikeouts for a very, very long time. Saw Young holds the record for wins and losses. Right. <laughs> so, um, but that's just the result of longevity. And I, I think that has a lot to do with it. And that's something Schilling has in his favor. I think he played 20, 21 seasons. Um, you know, will he get in? I think he will get in, but um, I don't know. I always said a lot of times that coaching younger kids, let your on-field play speak for itself. You don't, you shouldn't have to go tell people how great you were or how great you played. And um, I think Kurt's been his biggest fan going forward after he retired about getting in the Hall of Fame. And now that he hasn't gotten in, he's kind of whining about it. You know, I mean, it is what it is, but... Uh...
Yeah. You know, I think he'll in eventually, but I, I just, it makes me sad to think, it just makes me sad to think that he's poor sport about not getting in nine years and now he doesn't want to be on the ballot. I, I just don't understand that. Yeah, we'll see if they even allow that to happen. My guess is is no, um, but that might impact his votes anyway. Now, things have changed dramatically since you were in the league, especially technology-wise, and now there's a big emphasis on prospects and the draft and whatnot. Take us back to when you were drafted. How did you find out that you were going to be headed to a, a major league ball team? Um. Well, everything really started to come together my junior year in college and scouts came around a lot more. And um, actually my freshman and sophomore years, I had scouts. They knew I didn't want to go to school. I just wanted to play baseball. So I had a few scouts um, tell me that the only way I could go play is if I dropped out of school. And after my sophomore year, I actually did call the commissioner's office to request eligibility for the draft the team or my college had to somehow, I don't know the stipulations on it, but they had to grant me, um, I guess, release me or something. I don't know how they called what they call it, but they wouldn't do that. Right. So I ended up having to go back from my junior year, but there was so many scouts around kind of came more of a reality when they, I had to take a test. It was a 205 questionnaire test for major league baseball and scouts talking to me about, how much money it would take to sign me um, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it was pretty cool when I got drafted. I got a phone call at my house that the Braves had drafted me in the fifth round. And, um, you know, my parents were just jumping around and excited. And, and I was sitting there pretty calm, cool, and collective. And I forget if it was my mom or dad, they looked at me and they said, you're not even excited? I mean, this is what you've worked for your whole life. And they weren't around every day because they were two and a half hours away from my college. So they didn't see all the scouts and phone calls I was getting from. Today, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. Direct TV Stream brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So stop waiting and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. And, and all that that goes into it. Um, I just looked at him. I said, well, this is part of the plan. This was supposed to happen. <laughs> just shook their head because they couldn't. They didn't understand it. And even after going to the minor leagues, I'd pitch a good game and call home or um, – I just call home in general and tell them how I was doing. And they thought I was going to be going to the big leagues, you know, anytime it's, it's not like other sports where you get drafted in football or. Nine minor league teams. So, you know, I'm at the bottom of the barrel and, and I was in a high a rookie ball, but still had to go. There was three single a teams, double a triple a. Um, so, or, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's three rookie ball teams, three triple A teams, double A, triple A, and then the big leagues. So it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a really, really big struggle that guys don't understand the sacrifice, the determination 
that it takes to get to the big leagues unless, you know, you're a number one pick and you kind of, they just push you along the way. And I think nowadays um, baseball's more adamant about rushing guys to the big leagues. Back then it was something stupid. Like they thought, Oh, a guy has to pitch at least a thousand innings in the minor leagues to get to the big leagues. Or the guys are spending at least five, six years in the minor leagues before they get to the big leagues, unless you're just an absolute phenom, which I wasn't. So. Yeah, so with COVID, everything going on, uh, financially, minor leagues, <laughs> they've been really, really hurt. Um, what do you think Major League Baseball, uh, the strategy that they can use moving forward uh, to potentially resuscitate the, the minor leagues, or, or is that a ship that you think has sailed too far away right now? Um, I think it's just terrible, especially in light of COVID, that – I mean, before COVID happened, they wanted to get rid of 42 minor league teams. And that's just not getting rid of teams. That's decimating some communities. So many jobs. I mean, it's an incalculable uh, between players, trainers, umpires, um, front office personnel, stadium workers. I mean, where does it end? Hotels, restaurants, all that stuff. And there's plenty of players out there. I mean, they've had uh, teams in these cities and towns for years and years and years. Um, and I just think that they're always complaining about pitching being diluted and this and that. There's not enough people playing baseball and there's not enough black people playing baseball. We'll let them play, create more teams and let them play. They have so much money in the game of baseball that it shouldn't come down to dollars and cents. I'm sorry, it just shouldn't. You're paying uh, huge contracts at the big league level. And when I was in the minor leagues, I was told it's easier for a big league player to get fifty dollars to $100,000 extra than it is for you to get $50 more a month. And uh, that's just sad. There's, there's so many players that, that, I mean, you drive around in the summertime, you see people playing beer league softball. It's basically because they, you know, they – playing baseball, hardball, as some people call it. It's just too fast of a game. And, uh, you know, the field's not as big as, as a big league field. Um, and they play for free. Hell, they don't pay for free. They actually pay to play on these teams. <laughs> so um, I just think that that, that there, there's so many independent leagues out there, too, and summer leagues that collegiate guys play that they can easily uh, have more rounds in the draft and, and – you know, because there are Mike Piazzas out there, 62-round draft picks. And now last year where they had five or ten rounds, next year I think they're going to have 25 rounds. Um, but I don't I don't think they should get rid of any minor league teams. I just think they should leave it alone. And and that's the thing that sucks about baseball too and, and a lot of sports is they keep screwing with the sports. They keep changing it and screwing with this, screwing with that, rules. And, uh, you know, I – to me, it was really, really just upsetting that last year we're going to start with a guy on second base. Oh, yeah. What the hell is that? You play till the game's over. And, Especially you know, as a reliever, you must – I mean, that must have really hurt you. Yeah, well, and, and it's like hockey now or soccer. You guys bust your ass to go to, the say, the World Cup, and you play – the entire game and it's a tie and then you play two play or two extra overtime periods and then it goes to a shootout. You mean to tell me your entire 
season is going to come down to a shootout. Um, you know, excuse my ignorance, but I don't know if the world series came down to game seven and the game was tied after nine innings, where they started with a guy on second base. No, they said they were just playing turns, luckily. But, uh, so why, why, why are we going to change it now? If it's good all season long, why is, why is it, you know, now we're going to play the way it's supposed to be played. Yeah. Right. Turk. And, no, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, what do you remember about when you got the call that you're heading up to the big leagues and, and obviously your first, your first uh, game in the big leagues? Um, I guess pompously, I kind of thought, wow, it's about time. Yeah. Of course I was excited. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> well, I mean, in, in 90, 91, the Braves told me I was going to go up anytime. Chris Chambliss, Yankee was my manager with the Braves in double A. And he said, uh, I was pitching really well. And he said, Hey, make sure you pack a, a, a sport coat on the road trip. Cause they're going to call you up to the big leagues from double A right to the big leagues. And it never happened. I mean, and I don't know where it got out that was in the paper. And every time I pitch a good game, like, when did your plane leave and all this. So then I ended up getting called up to triple A that summer, a, a couple months later, it wasn't even that exciting because I thought I was going to the big leagues. But uh, when I did finally get the big leagues, um, that call, um, you know, it was, I wouldn't say overwhelming, but just a, a great sense of accomplishment that, wow, I finally, finally did it. No doubt about it. Now, obviously you're well known for a bunch of different things uh, that make you who you are. The chewing black licorice, throwing the rosin bag, uh, jumping foul lines, having the umpire roll the ball to you, crouching down when the catcher stands up, uh, and, and so many more things. Uh, waving to the center fielder. When did all these things start for you? Was it when you were in minors? Was it in your majors? Or did it start even back in college? Um, it started in high school. And I don't know if you guys remember Jimmy Duquette. Who was, you know, assistant GM and then GM for the Mets. He and I grew up together. Wow. And wow. we played Babe Ruth together, high school together, Legion ball, uh, summer collegiate together. And in high school, he's a really good athlete. I mean, unbelievable. He's probably one of the most talented players, basketball, soccer, baseball that, that I played with in high school. Um, and I used to joke around with guys when he came in the clubhouse going, you guys don't understand. He's the shit. Jimmy Duquette <laughs> was freaking all everything. Like, and I, I, I still, I mean, he comes from a great athletic family too. But um, so anyway, in high school, he was playing center field. And I guess I'd thrown a pitch or something. And after the inning was over, he came in and he comes up to me. He goes, dude, you work so fast. I wasn't even ready when you threw a pitch. I was looking or Ted was back was turned to me or something. And so ever since then, I said, okay, I'll make sure you're always ready. So I always go up, point out to Duke in center field saying, are you ready? Um, and then in college, guys would play this game, chewing tobacco and spitting on your shoes. So I've never chewed tobacco. And I thought, wow, it'd be pretty cool to kind of look cool. Like I was chewing tobacco and I like black licorice. So I started chewing black licorice. Um, uh, 
trying to think of what other uh in high school i i'd given up a run and i didn't know what happened so i thought about you know what i do differently and i remember stepping on the foul line when i went out to take the field so i, I made sure i didn't step on that foul line but that's pretty common in, in, in baseball people that uh, avoid the foul line some people always have to touch first base or third base when they're taking the field um but I, I think that just through trial and error, success and failure, more or less, and we're creatures of habit that we um, create routines, not so much superstition, but a routine because it makes us feel comfortable, gets us in a comfort zone. The more comfortable we feel, the better we're going to perform, no matter what your job is. Uh, the one thing that's pretty ironic is in 94, 95 I think 95 yes 95 was um, Jim Riggleman's first year as a manager in Chicago and his first well our first day of spring training practice is over and he calls me over to the side and he tells me I don't want you to do any of that stuff anymore because I think you're you're a tremendous athlete you have a great arm and I don't want anyone to talk about your your all these other things i wanted to talk about your arm i want to talk have them talk about your athletic ability your competitiveness so i thought well geez you know this guy's pissing on my parade in the first day first conversation i ever have with him and it took a lot of the fun out of it for me because that's how i had fun and i got myself into a comfort zone but i just uh you know i wanted to do what the manager wanted me to do out of respect for him and his role. And, uh, of course I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be a squeaky wheel in the cog of the team. So I obliged and just came up with different routines and, you know, people still talk about that, but I played the next 10 years in the big leagues and didn't do any of that stuff. Um, in Chicago, I remember, uh, giving up a home run and I was so pissed at myself because it was kind of a no-name player. And I thought, you know, how am I, why am I letting my guard down on – because I was always amped up to play or pitch against the big-name guys, but it was the guys that you really didn't know that you kind of let your guard down a little bit. Kind of like when closers come in with a three-run lead, they're not as sharp because they know they have room for error. Or this um, uh, so anyway, I, I picked the rosin bag up as the guy was rounding the bases and I just screamed at myself and I fired the freaking rosin bag down. And that's how that started. And I would always yell at myself, stay motivated, stay focused and stay aggressive. You were certainly entertaining. And I'm glad you started touching on superstitions and routines uh, because obviously a lot, mostly everybody uh, does something or, or has some type of a, a type of training regimen that's different than everybody else. Uh, so when you were in the clubhouse, uh, what was your routine before the game? Maybe something that you ate before the game. Maybe it was some kind of stretching or training that you did before the game. Uh, what did you dif- do that differed from uh, all your other peers? And what were the most out there, wacky, crazy uh, training regimens that you saw the uh, players have because i'm sure there were a few um well i was pretty unique in that also that i would 
I usually got to the park at 11 or 1130 in the morning for a night game at seven o'clock uh, day games. I would probably get there around five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. But most people think, oh, game's at seven. What do you show up at five, six o'clock? <laughs> Especially when I went somewhere um, to a city where I had a friend or college buddy or high school buddy that lived, uh, say, in California or something. Dude, I'm not here on vacation. I'm here to work. <laughs> but I would, uh, my routine was I would go in. I was always the first one there at the ballpark, aside of the, you know, the clubhouse guys. And I would fill the, um, the, hot tubs up in the training room to about 110 degrees get in there stretch while i'm in the hot tub the been thinking about mcdonald's all day can't get it off my mind i can already taste it oh got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some mickey d's deal there's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Every day, thousands of hackers try to steal your crypto. But Arculus uses air-gapped technology by forming a protective barrier that insulates you from hackers and secures your crypto. Order yours at GetArculus.com. Get out, and I would run. I would run anywhere from five to eight miles every day before the ball games. I'd come back. I'd shower. I'd make a protein shake. Then I'd go in, do arm exercises. Uh, the trainers would stretch my arm, stretch my legs. We'd go out for batting practice, come back in, shower again. And a lot of times I would have usually – um, a tuna sandwich before a game or sometimes we would have sushi in the clubhouse in New York. But uh, then after the game, we would do maybe some ice or something like that or an ab workout with the strength coach. I was never a weightlifting guy, so I never did any kind of weights. But, um, you know, I never really paid attention to um, everyone else's routines. I know there's one guy named Pettigini. He used to pour a beer over his head before the games. That's probably <laughs> one of the most wacky things that, uh, that I can remember. It wasn't like a Moises Alou where he'd, I heard he pissed on his hands. <laughs> so like calluses or whatnot, but, uh, you know, everybody just kind of, I think guys that spend four plus years in the big leagues have routines. And like you said, they're all different and that's, that's what uh, keeps you in the right direction for a level of consistency that it takes to play in the big leagues yeah, for, for a long time, not to mention, you know, doing your job. Yeah. Do you still wear your famous necklace that everyone loves to talk about? Oh, I have a few things on here still, but it's yeah. kind of broke over yeah. the years. My son's got a really good one working. So he wears that when he pitches. Awesome. So Turk, I was at a game once, where you fired your glove into the stick. <laughs> you got into the second tier, the, the the blue seats, and just a few rows ahead of me, it landed. And I was so mad as a kid that I didn't catch it. And uh, like that, I, that's when I really started liking you a lot as a player. What do you remember about, about throwing your glove into the stands? I remember being really pissed. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously it was never a good game where I'd, I'd done well. I just figured, you know, this glove's all the luck's out of this glove. I got to get rid of it and get a new one. 
And uh, I remember one time taking my jersey off and everything in the dugout and the cleats. And I didn't throw my jersey in the, in the garbage, but I threw my cleats in the garbage. And I'm just basically standing there. And um, the next day, the clubbies got my cleats and he's putting them in my locker. And I go, what the hell are you doing? Threw those things away. Well, I, I didn't know you. I thought you were just joking around or you weren't serious about it. I don't want those damn things anymore. Um, but Valentine called me in the office one day after I chucked my glove in there and he said, Hey, I understand your frustration and all that stuff, but you know, how do you feel if you hit some little lady in the face? Right. <laughs> so, now you have a hard time in. getting it over the net because it's it super high. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee you I can do it though. I'd be so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> about it. Now, speaking of things being thrown, uh, Let's touch on John Rocker back in the day uh, and batteries thrown at him. Uh, and that's just kind of I want to touch on. You said how you, know, you didn't plan during a social media age. Could you imagine in this day age if that guy was coming to, to City Field? Oh, yeah, that would be crazy. But, you know, I thought it was really stupid of what he said, no doubt, hands down. But, and, it, and it's a big debate now, talking about politics. What happened to freedom of speech? Why can't he just, you know, it's weird that certain people can say stuff and everyone gets offended, but other people say stuff and it's, oh, it's freedom of speech. Uh, I don't understand all the double standards and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I, that's one thing I did feel bad for Rocker as much of a, you know, knucklehead that he was by saying that, that, you know, he gets under this huge, course you're going to piss people off that's no doubt when you're when you talk about uh different cultures and stuff but next thing you know major league baseball is making them go to sensitivity classes and all this other stuff and um i think if he wanted to fight it he probably could have under the constitution but uh yeah today he would i don't know if he could even go anywhere because i mean it's like it's like today You'd be stupid to do anything like rob a bank or something. Everybody's got a phone with a camera on it, and it seems like they're glued to it, and they automatically know how to just push record all the time. So <laughs> you're not getting away with anything. You're under the microscope all the time, which to me kind of sucks because when can you just really be yourself? All right. But sure. I guess if you're not doing anything wrong, then – you can always be yourself. How pissed were you guys at Roger Clemens in 2000? I mean, as uh, a fan, I just couldn't stand that guy. Yeah, that whole ordeal. And he hit Mike in the in the head at the all star before the All-Star break. And then, uh, you know, the game one of the World Series when he chucks the ball, the bat at him and all that stuff. I like that makes any better. <laughs> that made me mad not just on a personal level. I mean, Roger's a great competitor and was a great pitcher, but it, it made me more angry that if that was me and, and Jeter was up to bat and I, the same thing happened and I chucked the, the barrel of the bat at him, dude, I'd have been kicked out of the game immediately. Yeah. So, and you know, for Roger to come out and say, Oh, I thought it was the ball. I just, you know, we're not playing wiffle ball, buddy. <laughs> I mean, he had an easy out. All he had to do was say, "Look, it was World Series. I was amped up. I just, I, I don't know what the hell I was thinking." 
Yeah. But, you know, whatever. It's, it's kind of funny because I was pretty outspoken about all that. And in, in 2005, um, right before I retired, I was in spring training with the Astros. And of course, Roger was there and his locker was two lockers next to mine. And he came in and I looked over at him and stuck my hand out said hey nice to meet you turk wendell and he's like i know who you are (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it's a cordial thing to do right (laughs) yeah can't just assume everybody knows who you are so how how great was it watching you know what piazza did with for you guys on a a nightly basis and also you know he gets some (laughs) slack for not attacking clemens but i think his explanation made a lot of sense which is if I attacked him, I'm probably out for the series, and that would hurt us even more. Yeah, I mean, I guess saner heads prevail, but, um, you know, who knows? You can sit there and play Monday morning quarterback about that all you want. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. Um, my biggest thing is we should have drilled two or three of those guys. Yeah. Same situation. <laughs> well, and then, you know, I mean, that's the same. Same situation, drill them right in the head. And uh, that's the old school part of the game that's really been lost, you know, an eye for an eye, so to speak. And baseball, baseball is pretty much uh, the police themselves. And, you know, what was it, three years later or something? Or no, it might have been even longer than that. Six years later, Estes tries to hit uh, Piazza and misses him, but. Estes had nothing to do. He had no idea what the, I'm sorry. He's trying to hit Clemens when he got the bat at Shea. And I think that would have been a, a bigger deal if, if Roger would have had a bat all the time. I don't think he would have been right. Been like that. Estes but, ends up yeah. hitting a home run off Clemens to give the Mets a win. So at least he gets yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and he hit a lot of home runs off Clemens too. I remember one in particular was a grand slam and, uh, it was pretty cool because I'm not a very big, um, I don't know, I'm very religious, but I don't preach it. So, you know, I just think it's everyone's own walk is their own walk. And um, a few times with a couple different players, but if two or three times with Mike, he was struggling. And I said, hey, let me see your bat. And, and I just had his bat for a little while and prayed with it. And I drew a, a tiny little cross on his bat and unbelievably he goes out and hits a Jack off Clemens. Wow. And I ran over and I said to the bat boy, I said, let me see that bat. Let me see that bat. <laughs> and that cross was gone. Oof. And I would always put it on the sweet spot. And I'm, I'm not joking. This happened four or five different times, not just with, with Piazza, but uh, with another guy I played in AAA with. And the guy in AAA is like, dude, you got to do that again. You got to do that again. I said, no, you can't do that again. This is stuff you can't force. And uh, three times off the top of my head, I can think of that happened with Mike. He probably doesn't even remember it, but because I remember one guy saying, dude, what did you do? What did you do? I said, don't worry about it. That's a good story. Um, so the story that you mentioned before with Regelman had me thinking and had the gears turning. I'm looking at your career stats now. 
the year after Riggleman got there in Chicago, you had your best season in Chicago. And then the years following with the Mets were the best years of your career. So it seems like even though you hated that first impression, uh, you actually ended up pitching better because of that. Now, maybe obviously that is attributed to getting used to the big leagues and, and hitters and whatnot and the speed of the game and uh, the expectations. Uh, but who were the most important people uh, in your career, whether it was another player, whether it was a coach working very closely with you? Uh, who do you think uh, are the people that are most responsible uh, for having the success that you did over the course of those few seasons? Well, hands down, I'm going to say Riggleman and then Bobby Valentine. Um, you know, it wasn't so much that uh, Riggleman sat me aside and, and told me not to do that stuff, but he actually gave me a chance. At that point in my career, I never really had a chance to prove myself as a player consistently. Um, and that the one thing that I wish I would have had the opportunity was to get, you know, 20 starts in the big leagues to see what I could do. Every time I got a start, it was, uh, yeah, you're going to start tomorrow. And then I'm back in AAA the next day. It was, uh, you know, up and down kind of roller coaster deal where I never knew I never could get comfortable as a big league player and not so much comfortable as, as, as uh, I didn't know where I was going to be one day from the next, as far as being comfortable. Um, and I'll never forget it after the, um, I think it was the 96 season Riggleman called me in the office and said, Hey, I just want to say thank you for doing everything that I've asked you to do. And I, I just love your competitiveness and um, I just can't thank you enough. And I looked at him and I said, you're thanking me. Thank you. I said, if I go home this winter and something happens and I can never play baseball again, at least now I know that I belonged here, that I, that I could be here. And you're the only one that's given me a chance to prove that. And to this day, Riggleman will call me out of the blue. He's like, man, I just wanted to just, think about you all the time, man. I wish, I wish there was a lot more players like you. I always usually, as an example, uh, uh, your, just your work ethic and your grind and, and your competitiveness, they don't make guys like you anymore. And then going back to, you know, I go from being a closer in Chicago, getting traded to the Mets, and now I'm a long reliever. <laughs> so it was another adjustment. So when I first got to the Mets, you can look at my stats, they weren't that great because I never got to pitch consistently. And it was a 98 season where I'm the long guy. And uh, I'm telling you, if I didn't pitch before the fifth inning, I could just take my shoes off because I wasn't going to pitch unless it was extra innings or something. Or it was a you know, blowout game where they said, hey, you let them pitch an inning or something like that. But anyway, so 98, we're in Toronto and Nomo's pitching. And he has back spasms in the third inning game's tied I think it was two two or three three or something like that and so I go out pitch the fourth inning game still tied go out pitch uh we score a few runs go out pitch the fifth inning and I don't know I got one out or two outs or whatever it was and uh gave up a hit or a walk somebody has got on first base and I remember throwing over to first because you know it's still a close games I think it was two run lead and as I threw over, I, according to my eye, I saw someone warming up in the bullpen. 
And I'm thinking, what the hell? This is my time to shine. I'm the long reliever. Why the hell does he have somebody warming up in the bullpen? So, you know, now I have doubts that he doesn't have confidence in me and it pisses me off. So, of course, it doesn't make matters better for me that Sean Green takes me deep for a two-run jack. And uh, our both, you know, I think I might have given up a hit or walk after that, and he pulls me out, and our bullpen literally just imploded. <clears throat> and we got blown out in that game. But uh, so the next day I go into Valentine's office, and I said, hey, look, and I would do this every year with every manager I had. I said, I need to know what you think I need to work on to be a better player because if I can do that, well, I'm going to be a better player and we're going to be a better team. And I said, don't, you know, don't tell me what I want to hear. Don't sugarcoat it. I'm a man. You tell me how it is. It's my job to accept that and and do as you wish. So he said, look, you know, I, I, you just got to get guys out. And I said, well, it just, you having somebody warm up in the bullpen makes me think that you don't have confidence in me. And he says, look, you just got to get guys out. I don't care how you do it. Just get them out. Okay. Who can't handle that? So at this point in our 662 game season, I've pitched in 33 games. We have a hundred and I think we're 108 games into the season. So we had 50, 54 games left. We go back to, to Shea at the time, playing the Expos, and it's a one-run lead. Seventh inning's over, phone rings. Turk's in the game. And I'm going, what the hell? Holy crap. And so I go out there, and I get uh, the first guy three and two, get him out. Next guy, I get three and two, get him out. Next guy, three and two, and I walk him. Well, Mike Lansing's up, right-handed batter. Valentine comes out, or Abadaka, whoever came out at the time. I think it was Abadaka. Yeah, I know it was Abadaka because I came off the field. And I threw my glove down. I go, that's freaking bullshit. You're bringing in a lefty to face a righty. I can get that guy out. And he's like, well, you want three and two on everybody. I said, bottom line is I got him out. Right. And so that's that was very out of character for me. And, hell, I, Johnny ended up giving up a triple to Lansing, tied the game. Um, I don't even know if we won or lost the game, but <clears throat> I didn't sleep the whole night thinking, you know, what a jerk. Can't believe I said that on, you know, on the bench in front of the team. And that, that's just not like me. So the next day went in as soon as Valentine got to the ballpark, went into his office. And I said, I just want to apologize for last night. I should have never done that. I should have just come in here and talked to you about it. Man to man, face to face. And he said, look, I know you want to pitch. And I know you're not afraid to pitch in any situation because whatever happens in the heat of the battle, that's just the heat of the battle. We all do things and say things we, we don't want ever to say or do again. He goes, but I know you want to pitch and you're not afraid to pitch in any situation. So at that point we had uh, what 54 games, 53 games left. I threw in 33 of them, 53 games. And then it just it set the tone for me pitching all the time. Even in the World Series, I mean, and I was a player that never, the more I worked, the better I got, the better I felt. And I didn't, I don't sleep much. And he called me in 
during the World Series, I think it was game two or three, and said, did you get up at three o'clock this morning and go deer hunting? And I said, yeah. He goes, good, because you pitch like shit if you get too much rest. <laughs> and it was true. It was you true. you pitch nine games in a row? Yeah. Yeah. Now you don't even see anybody pitch more than two days in a row. No, no. And then frick, in those nine games, I think I threw something like almost 24 innings. Crazy. So, but Ted, I was dealing. You're, you're there at the Mets and it was a really good era. Just want to bring up some things here and get your thoughts on what happened during that time. First, you had you played with what Sports Illustrated deemed the greatest infield of all time: Olerud, Alfonso, Ardonis. Unbelievable. And- how great was that knowing like if you hit on the ground it's, it's- oh my god I, i'll never forget uh in 98 and i don't i don't know olerud was there now i'm trying to think if we didn't we didn't have robin then i don't think because fonzie was playing third i think no fonzie was at second still anyway no i think fonzie was at third anyhow first game i come in because the astros uh first and second one out, Bagwell's up. Freaking Bagwell hits a rocket. One hops, you know, to my left or right off the mound, going up the middle. And immediately I'm thinking, shit. I turn around, freaking Ordonez turns two. <laughs> I'm going, holy crap. This sure as hell didn't happen in Chicago. No chance. With Sanchez or Dunstan out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just it was it was awesome to watch those guys. You never knew, especially with Ordonez and, and Fonzie up the middle when they were they just he was unbelievable. And it's sad that Ordonez didn't have a longer career, but he he just was lazy. I mean, he never he could flat out I mean, his glove was unbelievable, but and nowadays, hell, he'd probably be a freaking sixty million dollar player because you know, then no one really cares if he can hit anymore, just if he can field. So it's just weird how certain players – I mean, he still made a lot of money, but um, he, he was never out there for extra hitting. Um, so, you know, but uh, with Olerud and Ventura, I, I always called Robin Sleepy Floyd, from like Mayberry from uh, Andy Griffith show because he, there was nothing flashy about Robin. He's just, just nonchalant, just kind of goes about his business, and he's solid. Um of course, Ordonez, Fonzie was the same way. It's, it's just nothing flashy, just going about his business. And and Olerud, I mean, they don't they don't get any better than Olerud. I remember after we lost uh, the, the NLCS in '99, Olerud came on the bus, and his wife and him were on the bus, and we were the only three on there. And I said, you know, John, I don't know if you'll be back with the Mets next year or not. Because I know you're a free agent, but I just want you to know. If I ever have a son, I want him to be just like you. Because you are the epitome of a man among men and a true baseball player. What a baseball player should be. Now, 2001, stupidly, you get traded to the, the Phillies. But I want to ask you, what do you remember about the whole Shinjo craze? I remember the, the media was going crazy, the Japanese media. And then also, uh, that season, Alby did the turn ahead the clocks jersey promotion oh, that's one of the dumbest was, uniforms that ever. was supposed to be for 2021 so it would have been this year so the mets are not a mercury yet but yeah the mercury mets i remember watching those stupid pictures on the billboards too 
<laughs> um, Shinjo is awesome. What a great, great guy. Um, it's too bad he didn't play longer, but uh, I, I really enjoyed playing with all the, the, the Japanese players, you know, Yoshi and, and Nomo. But uh, Shinjo and I, I think, I don't know, Yoshi and I got along. Nomo was kind of quiet to himself more, but uh, Shinjo was, uh, he was just, he was a cool character too. And just super nice. I mean, he had, uh, he had special socks made for me with my number on them, the, the little toe socks that they have in Japan. He's um, just, he was just an awesome guy. And I remember uh, going out to dinner with him and his wife when his wife came to town. And a lot of people didn't know it, but she was this big time movie star over there in Japan. Wow. And absolutely beautiful. I mean, she's probably the prettiest Japanese woman I've ever, ever met or seen. Um, but uh, yeah, the whole, I don't know I, who came up with that Mercury Met deal. <laughs> but that was this year, huh? That's funny. Because I would have never, never guessed it was this year. So we had, uh, obviously, Jay Horowitz on. Uh, he was the one who helped us here. Uh, known, uh, so what were the best pranks pulled on Jay during your time there? Uh, he would come into the clubhouse all the time. And Jay's such a great guy, such a good character. Uh, you could always tell what Jay has for lunch because it's on his shirt. And <laughs> I would always, I, I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is no joke. This is not an exaggeration. Um, I would, he would always, you know, dressed up suit and tie or whatever. Uh, I would always untuck his shirts and, and, you know, Jay would be talking to somebody and I'd reach in his, pull his back pocket out a little bit and throw a bunch of baby powder in there and then smack him in the ass <laughs> just you know do do stupid stuff like that um uh i'm trying to think just giving him some some sushi with a lot of freaking wasabi caked underneath a piece of sushi <laughs> <laughs> um gosh dang there's i can't think of anything else right really off the top of my head but you know it's just one of those things that keeps everybody loose keeps the clubhouse loose you got to have guys like that and that's why they say a lot of times he's great in the clubhouse certainly now a lot of people always say the bets struggle with their farm system however i mean you got two two greats here donovan mitchell and patrick mahomes up through the mets the mets farm system what do you remember about those two youngsters taking fly balls in the outfield uh, at chase stadium well, I don't remember Donovan because I think he was after me, I believe, because he's a lot younger, isn't he? I don't know. But uh, little Mahomie, um, yeah, I remember him running around. I remember Pat coming in the clubhouse going, I'm going to do it with my kid. He won't sleep at night. Stays up all freaking night. Now I joke with him. I go, yeah, he was watching freaking films, <laughs> football. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's pretty cool to see these these guys and their kids and the, and the accolades that they've done and accomplishments and everything. I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome to even see guys that I played against and their kids in the big leagues now and, and doing every, all the kinds of things. Hell Todd Zeal's uh, daughter, she's on the, an unbelievable show called this is us that, you know, it's hugely popular. Yeah, um, yeah, wow. So she's, she's an actress and, she's doing really well too. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool to, to, to see Al Leiter's son is, is uh, on the docket for being a high round draft pick this year. 
so it's uh it's pretty cool to see that and follow follow those people yeah it's a really great connection that all you guys from those Mets teams uh still have some of what of a connection today and obviously like I said uh Nick's the Mets fan here I'm the Yankees fan but uh do remember the 2000 World Series and I do have a lot of close friends who grew up as Mets fans so I'm very familiar with those guys from those teams and uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, we thank you for doing this with us. Uh, you were great. You had great stories, a lot of great insight. Um, what we do here is usually we give our guests the last words. Uh, if there's, so if there's anything you would like to share or promote, uh, if there's anything that you would want to get out to the world, you want to say in your own words, head. thank you again for doing this with us. Really, really appreciate it, Tarek. Thanks for coming on. Well, obviously, I don't have a platform. I believe I have a platform, but there's only one thing I can say. It's stay in your own lane. There you go. Great words there. So that's going to do it here for this episode of You Know I'm Right. For our very special guest, Turk Wendell, for my co-host, Joe Calabrese, I'm Nick Durst. Let's go Mets. And this has been You Know I'm Right. Where's my order? Does anyone know how to find my order? How can I find Where my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom, the customer support platform that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more.